Hello, hello, hello. Hello. I've never done this before. I type, but I don't talk. That's fine, though. We have to just kind of pretend that we know what we're doing. <laughs> There's gigs playing in the background. People go, oh, oh, should we really be talking about this? Are we supposed to be? Oh, looks like you're going to anyway. Welcome to the Pro's Community Choice Award-winning Troublesome Terps, the interpreting equivalent of a glass of cold water on a hot day. It's episode 17, and today we're living up to our goal of talking about the things that keep interpreters up at night. But before we even get there, it's time to welcome back our regular Teutonic duo. Here today once again is Brussels' answer to the question, just how cool are interpreter podcasters? Welcome back to the show, Alexander Drexel. Oh God, thank you so much, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> and here once again for another round is our very own Bavarian sensation, Alexander Gansmeyer. Hey guys, coming to you live from Munich, where Oktoberfest is going on. I'm actually breaking in my laters and as we speak, so if you hear me squeezing and trying to, you know, get out mm. some some sort of sound, it's because it's still very very tight. All the juicy <laughs> details. <laughs> I, I was going to say that one image makes me really glad of today's topic on the show because I'm going to need some a specialist in mental health after that image. Yes. <laughs> Just wait till I send you the pictures from tomorrow. <laughs> oh, please let us know. <laughs> Today, today's show marks a milestone for us. There's no more important issue in our profession today than making sure that we still have professionals tomorrow. So today we're going to talk about the biggest and arguably most difficult challenge faced by our profession as a whole, and you heard that a moment ago, mental health. And to do that, we have the honour of welcoming a mental health expert to the show, Justine Mason. Justine's a senior lecturer in health and social care at a university in Wrexham that I will not attempt to pronounce. <laughs> And, and was a mental health nurse before that. But I think it'd be really interesting to hear straight out how someone with a, a background in mental health and teaching mental health nurses came to be interested in interpreting. But before we get to that, Justine, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is this is so much fun. <laughs> so could you tell us a bit about, because your background is in mental health nursing and very much in healthcare, what first attracted you to talking about and, and thinking about mental health amongst interpreters? Uh, working with interpreters. Um, working, I used to work <laughs> on acute psychiatric units and you get people who are experiencing kind of acute mental distress, psychosis, and they need interpreters. And it kind of occurred to me that as a nurse, I had I had all sorts of means of dealing with the stories that I was hearing. Uh, from people but the interpreters didn't they just kind of we signed their form and and off they went so when I started to do my master's in translation studies I picked up a research interest in interpreters and interpreters in mental health settings which then became interpreters on mental health and when you say that uh, nurses have means to deal with mental stress with issues what what are those means can you give us a, a flavor of that i mean our our kind of learning our resilience really starts right in the first kind of first early days of our training because we have from when you first 
step on wards and start having patient contact, you have a mentor, you have a more experienced nurse who will talk you through it. We have, um, it's, it's actually resilience and emotional literacy is actually addressed specifically hmm. as part of the, the training curriculum. So it, it's always something you're always thinking about and you, you develop that resilience over time. And I think that's one thing that really strikes me because there was a well-known study by AIC, which is the the International Association of Conference Interpreters, and to many interpreters, AIC represents the kind of upper echelons of interpreting as a whole. And yet they did a study in 2001 which showed that interpreters had some of the highest levels of uh, emotional stress and burnout in that kind of interpreting than they had seen in any of the professions that had been tested. I think they tested with a higher stress than higher levels of burnout than teachers and army officers. Um, and it, it strikes me that if that's what's happening in conference interpreting where the conditions are good, you have, you know, air conditioned booths, you have set conditions, and you're you're supposedly taught professional distance then the rate of burnout and the lack of resilience and other forms of interpreting that don't have those same security blankets, if you're right, if you like, must be almost orders of magnitude higher. Um, if that's what's happening at the top of the profession, you know, at the best paid, best treated end of the profession, um, it really leaves open the big question of what's happening elsewhere in interpreting where there isn't as much protection as there is amongst members of a, a big association like AIC. Yeah, I mean, the, the research supports that as well. There's there's a 20-year body of research that shows that going into the, the sort of, I guess, it's the areas of of society that we don't want to think about. You know, you're talking about courts, prisons, um, you know, immigration centres, psychiatric hospitals. They're, they're places we don't want to think of as, as existing, you know, so, so the interpreter kind of becomes hidden away from that. But, I mean, I suppose the other advantage conference interpreters have is that they have other interpreters around them. You think about the amount of public service interpreters who work freelance, who kind of come in, do their thing, and, you know, there's a whole load of kind of literature in that that says that health services should debrief the interpreter which is all right if you're doing sort of a one-to-one -one psychology session, but if if you're doing if you're interpreting for something like um, somebody being what they call sectioned under the Mental Health Act, that's a process that can take six or seven hours from start to finish and involve multiple agencies. You know, so in in that kind of huge process, who's who has the debriefing kind of responsibility? because everybody has their own sort of professional things to do as well, the interpreter kind of gets forgotten. And, and, and they don't have other interpreters around them generally. I, th I think that phrase, the interpreter gets forgotten, is, is kind of resonates a lot with me because even when we're because a lot of conference interpreters are freelance as well but we have the advantage mm. of we're, we're sharing a booth yeah. and in in the in not all but in a large percentage of cases we we will walk into a job do the job and go home 
Mm. Um, and that job could be anything from, you know, my, my, my most recent job was a fairly straightforward job on social policy, which most interpreters will say, you know, that's not that difficult. But there have been jobs. I remember one job where in the middle of an international summit, we did uh, we handled a plenary talk by a speaker who was talking about life in occupied Palestine and how he learned to love Israeli soldiers. And there's no way that was not going to be emotional. And, you know, it, it lands on your desk. You have to deal with it. And the reality is in a conference session, you get a half an hour plenary and the expectation is that you'll be okay half an hour, 20 minutes later to do the next session. Um, even if you've just landed. I mean, we literally went from singing cartoon pandas to how I learned to love Israeli soldiers. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, and I'm sure kind of um, maybe the two Alexes will have had similar situations where you go from extremely emotional material to bread and butter or to just crazy stuff. And there's the expectation. I don't know if clients even think, oh, hold on a minute, that might have had an effect on the interpreter. Should we do something? A lot of the time, unless you have a good relationship and it's a repeat client, a lot of the time you realise that you're on your own and, and you just have to deal with it. And I, I I was, I was going to say, I, I think the certainly from that kind of point of view, part of the problem is that you encourage the interpreter to be, or the, the interpreter is encouraged to be invisible. So you almost kind of start from the baseline of you're not relevant, you don't matter. Mm. Yeah? Maybe I'm overthinking it. Well, that's generally speaking an issue that we struggle with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what I wanted to to share is just a little episode, something that happened to me after what uh, John just said, uh, Jonathan just said, um, because I, I found myself in a conference and I don't remember, quite remember what it was about, but uh, there was a, a mother there sharing the story of how she lost her daughter and I believe it was to, to drugs. And it kind of came out of the blue and kind of hit me as well. So it's uh, it's interesting that sometimes you you really just confront it with that without any preparation, and then uh, well you just you just do your best, I guess. I don't I don't know, Alex, if you ever had anything like that happen to you in a in a conference context or somewhere else. Well, in a conference context, no. I was trying to think and come up with stuff, and the only thing that I can come up with is sort of like gruesome medical conferences, but that's not kind of the same thing that that's kind of stressful on a different level, but not really, um, I think, in the same context. But yeah, in a, in a conference setting so far, I haven't really experienced anything anything like that. Now, of course, in public um, service settings, it's different, but I only used to do that when I was living in the UK. So I might be able to share a story or two mm. in a roundabout way when we get to that. But yeah, mm. in a conference so far, but maybe this good. This would a good it would be a good moment to just take a, a step back because Justine, I would be interested in in how all that happened. I mean, you you said uh, and Jonathan also said in the introduction that you started out as a nurse, but and that you apparently worked with interpreters. But I mean, how how did that happen for you that you became more involved with interpreting, developed that research interest? Can you just um, just tell us that story of how that happened? Um, I, <laughs> the the actual honest story is not quite that noble um i was doing <laughs> i was doing my translation masters and i'd had this idea we we had to present our master's proposal to like the whole kind of school so that was you know the great and the good and all these people with letters before their name and professors and stuff 
And I I decided I was going to do this whole thing about, you know, translation as transference and all the rest of it. And there was only like, sort of one, one thing that had been written on it. So I ordered this through the library. And it was just before Christmas. And it was about three days before. And it hadn't come. And I thought, I cannot turn up with nothing. I, I can't. That's, that's not an option. Um, I need to find something that, one, I can do quickly. And two, they're not going to ask me any questions about. And one thing I do know is when you tell people sort of, you know, service user stories and that, people tend not to ask too many questions. So that, that was kind of how I did it. And it was almost by accident. What I discovered was at that point, which is about seven years ago, it was a hugely under-researched area. Um, so off I went. And because I had interest in languages, I'd worked with interpreters, I'd worked in mental health settings. It was just sort of, it just all kind of came together. And I think, I mean, what you said about the interpreter being invisible, that's, for, I, 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 I was over the moon to hear you say that because some of us have been rattling on about interpreter visibilities since our first book came out. <laughs> but um, there, there's something about when people start looking at interpreter mental health and when people start thinking about the people side of our profession, one thing that comes up a lot in the research, and I'm sure you'll have seen this, is this idea of inter the language side of interpreting is kind of already well known. Um, and it's quite a brave decision for someone like you to take the risk of going into, you know, a fairly new field and, and waving the flag and saying, you know, we know all about this transference equivalence stuff, but actually there's a whole interaction going on that that people aren't really listening to. And we've had people try to look at, you know, the linguistics of the interaction and the roles. But it seems to be that what you've uncovered is, no, this is more than information being passed. This is people dealing with content that under ordinary circumstances are stressful. Now they're dealing with it in two languages without yeah. the training to deal with that. And do, did you find that when you started asking that question, how did you find interpreters reacting to that? Were they positive about it or were they a little bit iffy about someone coming onto their turf and asking personal questions? No, no, no. Um, it's been really, really well received. Mm. Um, I mean, people people tend to just be really glad that somebody is interested. Mm. You know, it, it's like this is what we've been trying to say, and nobody will listen. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I remember going to a, a thing, standing up, and going, "I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm a bit of kind of a fraud because I'm not actually an interpreter. I'm a nurse." <laughs> <laughs> um, because I'd, I'd sat there and I'd gone because it was something about interpreting mental health. And somebody was sitting there going, get a hobby. Get a hobby. <laughs> you think get a hobby is going to cover it? No, mate, dude, that's, that's not even going to begin to cover it. Mm. Um, and, and I couldn't kind of sit down and just shut up. So, But, well, I, I was just thinking about, because um, Alex Drexel and I met Justine first at the ITI conference, where anyone who mentions Billy Connolly in front of a Scott automatically gets gets an audience. Um, but how did you feel? What, what, because... what I thought was like looks of disappointment. <laughs> Just like, so you're not going to talk about Billy Connolly? Nah, not even close. Just but, to get me in. But I, I, 
it, it was fascinating to watch um, interpreters become skilled people watchers, but it was fascinating to listen to that audience as you started talking about interpreter mental health. Did did you get any feedback afterwards that 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 made you think you know there's something more to be done here? What was the reaction, especially at ITI conference, to someone being so bold about this is a problem here, so to fix it? I think there's there's always that kind of bit when people go, oh, oh, should we really be talking about this? Are we supposed to be? Oh, looks like you're going to anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because ultimately, it's it's not my regulatory body. I've got you know nothing to lose. Mm. But it it seems like a conversation that needs to be had. And yeah. You know, because it's people's mental health. And this is a difficulty because ITI is the prof- is a professional association and there is a regulatory body for public service interpreting. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult for anyone in that situation to quickly pick up the ball and run with it. Mm. Um, and it, it's funny, I remember um, I, I decided to share at a conference a couple of years ago, I decided to as a complete non-expert and the only expertise I had was I went through a a minor burnout episode for a week um, and I just shared that experience with people and then talked about the need for a supportive community and I was shocked at how many people came up to me afterwards and said you mean it's okay to be honest Mm -hmm. yes and it says everything about our profession and I have had people ask is it not breaching client confidentiality to get support now could you could you Give us a your view on how we get support without breaching confidentiality, because that's a big issue that I that interpreters have asked me about. Um, partly you need to stop overthinking the confidentiality thing. You know, if if you have a colleague that you know that you trust, um, and you kind of sit there and go, look, this this has to stay between the two of us. I mean, short of giving them. The, the company name, the client's name and address, you know, you can talk about it without giving the details away. Mm. Mm. You know what I mean? Co- confidentiality is giving somebody's name, address, you know, mm. clinical details. You don't have to say where you were. You don't have to say who it, you know, who it was in terms of a name. But you do need to, to say it because mm. otherwise it just goes around in your head and then it... it spirals off onto all sorts of pathways mm. i agree i think the the whole um, I, I don't want to say the magic bullet but i think it's about decompressing to another colleague and i think that was really the only people who if they've been in that situation really know what you're going through if you have one of those situations so i i completely agree with you mm. <laughs> I think, I mean, I have come across colleagues of various ages who have told me, doesn't confidentiality mean that we can that we can't tell anyone anything? No. And I, yeah, and this is where trying to help people understand. I, I actually wrote an article once and pulled out the BMA's definition of confidentiality, trying to get people to understand that we're probably doing ourselves more harm than good by battening down the hatches. Um, there's also professional pressure. I don't know if if the other two have noticed that. I've noticed professional pressure where if you're doing well and someone asks you no higher things, it's totally fine. 
but I have felt it, and I know other interpreters have said to me that they felt it, that if someone says how are things, it's very difficult as an interpreter to say, you know what, I haven't had any work in X number of months, or you know what, I've just had a something or other. It seems very difficult in our profession for interpreters to open up to other interpreters and say, you know what, you've asked me how I am, the actual answer is pretty rubbish. Um, I'm not sure where that's come from, but certainly I, I've been aware of it and I've, I've talked to colleagues and a couple of, I, I've heard other colleagues say the same thing. I don't know if the two Alexes, maybe it's different in the, when, when you're all staff, Alex, is it, is it, is it, when you're all staff, are you all completely open and transparent with each other? Uh, no, no, I don't think that's, that it's different for us, but that I was thinking of something else with a, a very simple thing is that it's already very difficult to talk with colleagues about things that maybe went wrong, you know, mistakes that were made or uh, when somebody screwed up and it, that's already very difficult to, to talk about. So of course it's even more complicated and more, um, more of a thorny issue when you're talking about things, you know, like mental health or problems that you have in your private life that of course will affect your performance in the booth, that kind of stuff. No, I don't think there's a, a difference with us, you know, compared to other interpreters. But I also think in Jonathan's case, this reminded me so much. This is just kind of a, a sideline thing, but it's a very British problem to have because I, <laughs> when I was yeah. still living in the UK and somebody asked me, oh, how are you? And I was like, well, you know, I'm not really good. Like their Ooh. face just dropped. <laughs> yeah, you know, like they're, in the beginning we, we did that because we were new to the whole thing and their faces <laughs> would just drop. So I think the, the level of the issue might be different in the yeah. UK, but... That's just on a side note, but I do think that I don't know. Maybe the maybe the well, we do have a reputation for being very blunt, but I think in Germany, um, at least in the English booth in in the area where I work, is quite open. So if you say, "So how are you?" You can go into a situation like you wouldn't say, "Oh my god, I'm you know I'm so bad, I'm so depressed." Like this this whole interpreting thing isn't working out, but you could talk about. Mm-hmm the fact that you're stressed out because the season's not going so well. And then you can go into that discussion. And, you know, I, I think that's that's fair game. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only a few people that I would really tell, like, about personal stuff. You know, if something went wrong with my family, like, I wouldn't normally bring that into the booth. But I do have some friends that I work with on a regular basis. But I would simply talk to them on the phone, too. You know, like, I would call them because mm-hmm. we're actually friends. So I think in that instance, it's 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 different again. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting thing because I don't know if it's a business person thing. You, you talk about being a British thing. There are friends that I have in church that I can just turn around to and say, "This is rubbish," um, but it's it's easier because they're out of the profession. Um, and you know, obviously, when you're married to someone as well, but when you have someone who's completely out of the profession and isn't, you're not half thinking about you know. Are they going to recommend me for a job if they know X? Um, th- there's this reputation factor in interpreting that I've noticed is interesting. And uh, I remember it was actually in a conference in Warsaw when I first heard the burnout story. And you could almost see the, f- the front row was quite experienced people. You could almost see them collectively drawing breath going, he's doing what? Um, it, and it's trying to build that that level, that get to the stage in the profession where it's okay if someone decides, you know, I'm doing a talk on 
uh, I don't know, supporting each other. And I'm going to make it real by saying, here's why we need support, because if you don't have support, this happens. <laughs> but it, most of the conferences I've been to at the moment are either certain agencies and clients are star cross, you know, words that we wouldn't say on the podcast, or it's about how great are we here try to get our skills better. There, there, there are very few spaces that we've created that say, actually, let's talk about the stuff that's going to wreck your career if you don't deal with it. Um, it's very, very rare to hear that anywhere. One, one of the things you kind of miss, you, you know, when you talk about skills, mm. but surely actually having the kind of emotional literacy to mm. engage very, very quickly with somebody who might be in a medical or psychological distress that's that's a skill yeah and and that that's a particular interpreting skill is engage to get the trust Mm. to disengage fairly quickly because once that assignment's over Mm. the chances are you're gone so that that Mm. is a skill in itself and that's to be able to do that you have to have you have to know yourself you have to be aware of what impacts on you and what doesn't Mm. So, so I think it's, it's probably important to put that as part of an interpreter skill set. Yeah. Can, can we just stick with that for a second? Because I find that very interesting. Now, it's a bit of a running gag, I suppose, among interpreters, at least here in the in the institutions, is that if you ask an interpreter, what did you, did you do last week or even yesterday, very often they, they won't know or they have to think for a few <laughs> minutes because, before they, you know, before they remember. True. Because um, if you do a lot of work, if you do a lot of steady and regular work, then it all just blends together. Um, and I think then at some point you will just develop, I guess, a a mechanism or a a reflex where you just forget these things. And of course, most of the topics are very bland or just, you know, standard topics and nothing that's sort of emotionally disturbing or or anything like that. So um, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, but is is that is that maybe helpful or uh, is it maybe for for some jobs it's just not possible to simply forget? Mm. I don't know if I'm making sense, but I was just yeah. thinking about that. I think that that's, that's a mechanism, but it does make me wonder how useful forgetting without dealing with something is. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're doing a lot of bland kind of policy stuff, um, it's no big deal. But every, you know, you, you chat to any interpreter and everyone's got a story of nightmare client. Everyone's got a story of job that they're really proud of. Um, th- there are some things that I've done that if I, I can tell you one specific one. I was doing research at a, a Christian conference once and my, my research had finished and they asked, can you jump into the booth to relieve the two interpreters who are exhausted? And I thought, yeah, no problem at all. And it just so happened that I think it was the first shift that I, the, sorry, the second shift I did was when they were raising money for some of the work they were doing abroad and they were raising money to basically create economic activity in an area where the only existing economic activity was selling uh, women and girls into prostitution. Now, I'm a trained interpreter and I had, quote unquote, all of the skills. And, you know, you know, I, I do fairly regular work. But that job, uh, the only mechanism that I had and the only mechanism I was trained to do 
do was almost to switch off to the emotional content of it. But the strange thing is, is because I had blocked it while I was interpreting to be able to interpret, um, I went out for, I think it was dinner with my wife afterwards, and suddenly as we sat down at the table, I said something like, did I just say, and then gave you know a brief outline and said yes, and at that moment it hit me and I couldn't eat. Yeah. And it makes it makes me wonder whether... Yes, if we're doing regular work, we'll, we'll tend to forget. But if there has been something that's made a difference, I'm, you know, maybe Justin, you'll correct me on this. But if something has had an emotional effect, forgetting doesn't seem to necessarily wa wash away the effect it has, unless it's been dealt with in some way. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a strategy that worked for nobody ever. <laughs> you know, be, because it, it doesn't go away. It, yeah. it stays yeah. there, and you know, you're right. If you don't deal with it, it might not impact you there and then it might impact you a week a month you know three months down the line hmm. but but it will come back and then go in anywhere wow did you in the framework of your research because you you talked about emotional literacy which i think is, is a great concept and i think one would think that professionally trained interpreters are supposedly very good when it comes to empathy, but that, does that at all translate into emotional literacy? Did you did you find anything like that in your research? Yeah, pe people who have um, good emotional literacy, tend to work the other way around. People who have good emotional literacy have better empathy because there's a whole kind of continuum of empathy and which starts at sympathy and kind of goes into this. Because sympathy is kind of, Under, not understanding what somebody feels, but feeling what they feel. And that's that in a professional context is not helpful. If you can understand how somebody feels and use that understanding to help them without taking it on board, that's the more emotionally literate way of doing it. The thing is, you, you kind of assume you talk a lot about kind of interpreter training, and it's that, that sort of functional skills isn't it mm -hmm. yeah do you ever get taught empathy how to empathize how to contain that empathy how to manage it mm. how to approach it with an emotional intelligence because it's something you assume everybody can do mm. but i'm not sure it's something you automatically can do because you speak another language mm. I, i certainly know as part of my training there was this idea reflected in theory as much as practice that you need to try and get into the speaker's head <laughs> now now i mean that, that that i actually wrote about that in, in, in my thesis and i've got a paper coming out about now um which 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 has that in the background um the interpreters are classically told you need to get into the person's head now the difficulty with that as you've just said is it it's fine it assumes that you know what to do when you get there Yes, and I think also there, there's an assumption that it's that, that that is a safe space to be, and if you're doing you yeah. know the, the 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 fishing policy off the the northwest coast of Scotland, then that's probably a safe place to be. If on yeah. the other hand you're doing interpreting for a, a wife beater or a murderer, that's not a safe place to be. And I no. I don't I've not come I've I wasn't trained in public service interpreting but I've not come across anyone kind of saying there's a line that you you know there are some people's heads you do not want to be in I've never heard anyone in interpreting say that maybe the Alexes have had a different background to me yeah I didn't quite catch the the question in there sorry 
the, the, the question was, had anyone ever, you know, we're often taught to get into people's heads. Yeah. Has anyone ever told you sometimes that's not a safe place to be, so don't? Oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> I, I yeah yeah that's probably I don't know I'm just trying to think back to my training I don't I don't know if that if that ever came up our, our training was very hands on very yeah sort of practical or, or sort of focused on the interpreting methods and stuff like that mm. so probably not no mm. we had a semblance of that in our in our education we did for. Um, kind of business interpreting situations. So, you know, doctor-patient discussions, those kinds of situations. We did talk about how to, well, quote-unquote, empathize with the patient, you know, how to be respectful in a situation, but mm. still be at a distance in a way. Um, and hats off to our, to our teachers back then at university because they were really dramatic. You know, they were really going for, <laughs> for trying to put us through, through the ringer. But that's really it. You know, those were isolated instances and we never really had that talk where somebody said, you know, you have to be careful to not be in someone else's head. It might not be a good idea. But I think, I don't know. Mm. Doesn't self-preservation kick in at at some point? You know, if you're sitting there, I, I had this one, I actually had three different public service interpreting assignments in my life and I don't think I'll ever forget them. Not necessarily because of the people, but not necessarily not because of the people. It was just, you know, just everything came together. One thing was in prison, one thing was in another prison, and one thing was in court. So mm. I probably remember it just for those reasons. But the first thing that I did was with a pedophile. And um, it was about the fact that he had intended to... Oh, sorry, actually, it was four public service interpreting assignments. One was at a mental ward. That was quite... That was actually probably the the I don't know if draining is the right word. Well, it was definitely the most interesting one, just because the lady was a schizophrenic and she had paranoid anxiety attacks. And so the thing is, for for us, it's usually about translating the words and you know interpreting back and forth from one language to the other. Hmm. But she, she wasn't making any sense. She was just mumbling. Wow. Along just because yeah. you know she had, she had a panic attack she didn't know where she was she was in the UK she was supposed to be in Germany and they were asking me well what is she saying what is she saying and then I had to explain to them that she's you know not really saying much and kind of explain like what she's doing but that she's not answering their questions because they had asked her a question and then she just started kind of like curling up and 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 doing her thing and they were like why aren't you are, why aren't you telling us what she's saying and I'm like well she's not really giving you an answer wow. and then I had to explain that so that was quite intense but mm-hmm. I think coming going back to my point with the self-preservation um when I went to prison and interpreted for the ped- uh, that that pedophile like it had never crossed my mind at all to kind of like put myself in the shoes of the speaker because in that way I could deliver a more um, accurate interpreting like Mm. that never crossed my mind. And I don't think anyone would argue that you should, you know, even Mm. for quality's sake, like nobody, if anybody were to make that point, I would have to have a serious word with them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because that's the the problem, right? I mean, I'm not too familiar with all the strategies that exist for self-preservation, I guess, but one that came to my mind immediately was to just go out of the situation. But if you're there as an interpreter, that's not really an option. And also we were locked in. 
yeah. And I, I think this is the thing is that there's my, my experience had been has been on, on the occasions where I've had emotional content. I mean, there was one where I just had to mentally mentally step back as pure survival. But there have been times when you've so, for instance, that um, film director one, the um, the situation there was that you didn't see what was coming. Uh, you you just had this really interesting, really deep story that you wanted to connect with, and then came the hard th- the hard bit. Um, and I think that makes. I, I guess if you're brief, the ideal would be that you're briefed for it and that you see it coming, and that you have strategies. But the difficulty is, is that there are situations where. You know, you're doing a summit. Oh, and here's a guy with, with an interesting talk who seems to be more interesting than your average politician. Hold on a minute, where's he taking me? Um, do, do, does that ever happen in your profession, Justine, where something that looks routine turns out to be? Hold on a minute, this isn't as routine as it looked. D- d- does that make it harder to deal with sometimes, or are you trained? You know, are you told there's no such thing as a routine situation, Justine? I mean, generally, there is there is no such thing as a routine situation, and you you kind of learn to anticipate the unexpected. Mm. But there, there's also that kind of you're right. You you deal with the situation that you've got at the point that you've got it, mm. and it's it's afterwards. Once it's over, everything's calmed down. You kind of go, oh man, I did not see that coming. Mm. Bad times. But you've got other people around you who've been in that situation at that time with you. And, you know, you mm. might not even do anything particular. You might just go, should we just have a brew? Yeah, mm. let's have a brew. And just sit, you know, three or four of you mm. just in silence. Mm. But, yeah, in, in the immediate, your self-preservation kicks in. But you have to, you deal with it at some point afterwards. Mm. And is it okay that not every situation seems to need, you know, going and finding a, a therapist-style thing? Is is it accepted that some difficult situations, all we need to do is just, you know, go and, go and find somewhere to cry or go and have a cup of tea or something like that without necessarily thinking, I need to go and see someone specific about this? Yeah, absolutely. And half, mm. of, the, half of the skill is kind of accepting how you feel. Mm-hmm. you know rather than doing this what seems to be quite a totally british thing to go i'm fine yeah you know you go back to how are you well, i'm fine mm. you know <laughs> legs dropping off i've got leprosy and everybody's dead but no i'm fine soldier <laughs> <off>. <laughs> that, that's how we built the empire yeah yeah i guess um there's another thing that that just occurred to me um because we've talked mainly about how the, the content of interpreting can be stressful or, or mentally taxing. But what about the things like, um, you know, a precarious situation, low pay, um, customers not wanting to pay at all, you know, the whole shenanigans that went on in the UK with um, the outsourcing of public service interpreting. Uh, I suppose that can also cause mental stress. Yeah, I mean, that, that's... Those are equal. They're longer term kind of constant stresses that that start grinding you down, and that certainly yeah has an impact on your mood, on your mental health. Because it's it's there's a physiological thing because 
it's a lot of kind of cortisol and adrenaline in your body and it impacts on you physically as well as mentally then mm. and it, i mean one of the things i've noticed that's almost ironic about when you're struggling is that the very motivation and push that you need to do the things to get you out of the pit you're in are the very things your brain doesn't seem equipped to do yeah um, absolutely certainly i've Certainly, I found that at times when business has been at its worst, and what I actually need to do is go out the house and go networking because things are at their worst. You 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 feel like you're not able to do it, and you know you get you get helpful people saying, "Well, if you go for a walk, you'll feel better." Mm. It's like, no, if I slap you in the face, I'll feel better. <laughs> but, you know, um, but but there is there is this idea of um, I, I often wonder how much do people are people right when they say you know there's no such thing as motivation you just have to do it even if you don't feel like it and how much is it you just accepting that at this very moment I'm not ready but I'm going to get myself ready because mm. I know that what I need to do is this um, it, it, it's finding the, the place somewhere between no I'm not going to sit here all day in my rocking chair and just let things go even further downhill but by the same token right now maybe a cup of tea is better than um writing a social media marketing plan i don't know <laughs> yeah exactly. yeah be- because the chances are if you do that social media marketing plan in that frame of mind you're gonna then look at it and go oh man this is pants <laughs> and and then Probably. you know yeah. then you just add into it because you go i can't even do that anymore Mm. Yeah, I mean, I can't go science, I can't get business, and now I can't even do a plan. And, mm. you know, whereas if you'd given it half an hour, I'd have brewed, you know, a couple of custard creams, then you'd have been all right. Mm. That's a really good kind point. Of specialist. Tea and custard cream solve most things. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. But Justine, what I'd be interested in, I mean, you've, you've been in this field for a while now. Do you, do you see things changing hopefully for the better in in wider society when it comes to topics like depression mental health or uh, is there a sort of a wider exception that depression is more than just being sad or down um, or is, is there wide acceptance in society that this is actually a thing that needs to be addressed and that people need help um i think we we do it all wrong really um mm-hmm. major soapbox alert <laughs> <laughs> go on then because we kind go of for it. part of the problem is when when people do have depression that we give them tablets and that kind of goes there's something wrong with you mm. you have a problem you have a disorder um which is different from you know normality our normal order and, and we're looking now go oh my god there's, there's so many sort of kids and adolescents with with all this these mental health problems And there's something ridiculous, like a 70% increase in the last 25 years of young people with anxiety and depression. But at no point do we kind of go, okay, what are we doing wrong? What is it in society that's actually putting this pressure on people? Because it it can't be some kind of weird evolutionary thing, you know, which, which would make it a disease. It has to be something in society. So I think we, we're using the words a lot more, but we're not kind of catching up as much as we should with actually stopping things happening in the first place. Because you never get celebrities talking about it once they've been through it. Mm. 
you know, it's I was depressed. I had mental health problems. Mm. At no point when they have them do they say it. So it's okay to have recovered from them. But mm. I'm I'm not sure we're great at you know when people are ill dealing right. with it. Which I think comes back to what you were talking about. Um, the whole interpreter invisibility and and building the strategies in and that you know we could this podcast will hopefully help people talk about it but the bigger question is well what's causing it in the first place and some of it could be vicarious trauma um an argument that i've been having and i know i've been making people uncomfortable is actually a lot of our mental health problems as a profession, definitely not as individuals, but as a profession, a lot of the mental health issues are seem to me to be self-inflicted and that we've created systems that are no good for us, um, like our mis- complete misunderstanding of confidentiality. We've created systems that are causing problems and we can't just kind of wring our hands and go, oh, no, we've got a mental health issue without looking at the systems that we've set up and saying, are these the right systems for keeping interpreters mentally healthy? Yeah, no, no, they're not. Um, <laughs> Thank you. That, that, that's it. That's, that's my time done. I've got all these. So um, well, no, because you, you start from this point of trying to make the interpreter, and that's, that's not you three, that's, that's generally, from being not human. Yeah. So when you set it up as a purely linguistic thing, you're kind of going, we're putting a human being, but we don't want you to have any human reactions and then when people are kind of going but we're we're humans you know we have emotions no 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 you're an interpreter you're not meant to so so don't yeah you know your code of conduct says don't so don't yeah and you know i I can just see people going oh well when you put it like that yeah no you're right i just won't i I just won't feel like this anymore (laughs) and so people then don't don't say it and then everybody's kind of going around, well, I'm not all right, but everybody else says they're all right, so maybe it's me. And so if, if at some point, fairly early on, somebody will go, you know what, sometimes you'll hear things and they, they will affect you because, yes, you're a trained interpreter, but above and beyond that, you're a human being. Yeah, not just a, a conduit or a, a dictionary on legs. Yeah. So, yeah. So there was one one terrible thought, actually, that that I was just thinking about, because um, there are some some people who who say that, you know, with with remote interpreting, that it will (laughs) replace. Yeah, another callback to early episodes. But anyway, that remote (laughs) remote is coming and will change a lot of things, you know, but what will happen to interpreters when they really sit in their home office all day? you know, working in these difficult situations and difficult topics and then having not, not even a booth mate to to debrief with or to, to just talk with, you know, that, that could be terrible. Yeah, it, I mean, likely to make the situation worse unless you set up some kind of system whereby people can talk to each other. Because mm. like you say, if, even if you're sitting next to somebody in a booth, it can be just something as simple as that. You know, that look that goes, wow, Yeah, this is a lot to take. And just knowing that somebody else in that that kind of incident feels the same thing. Yeah, just getting that reaction, yeah. Yeah. I mean, some kind I, of somebody else. I mean, I, I remember actually the most recent job, it wasn't a 
a kind of deep issue, but it was I'd just come off a technical but doable shift. And my poor boothmate started fresh on a shift with a speaker who opened her talk with two Robert Burns quotes. And, you know, me being the oh. compassionate, sympathetic person that I was, burst out laughing. <laughs> um, but, but the, you know, you have this shared joke in the booth of, I know you've just been given crazy shift. It's okay, we're in this together. Um, oh. And this is why, another one of the reasons why I've decided that I'm not offering remote interpreting and I'm not going to consult on it is because I don't, I'm not confident in the systems in place. One of the one of in fact, it is my motto at the moment is that I when I started, I thought interpreting was language skills with people attached. Now I realise it's not. It's people skills with language attached. Yeah. And the, the more I think that way, the more I realise everything people say about machine interpreting is plain wrong. Everything people say about remote interpreting is just plain wrong because we're still thinking of interpreters as invisible conduits. And until we change that record we're going to kill ourselves, pure and simple. Yeah, that, that, I think that probably boxes it up quite nicely. Hmm. <laughs> but anyway, we've talked a, a lot about problems and, and what I like to try to do, at least, is that as we go towards the end of an episode is to try and find a few uh, strategies, I think, a few things that we that we can do or that we can at least start and try and think about so um i know it's an unfair question to a researcher because research very often is you know observing things and studying things not necessarily uh you know giving giving tips and tricks and and showing strategies or possible solutions but but is there anything that we can what what would be a good start to improve things overall oh okay so so in my on my wish list would be that at some point somebody changes how interpreters are trained and that this is acknowledged you know somewhere hmm. um on an on an individual kind of smaller solutions kind of level it's look after yourself it, you know it, it's okay to not be okay it, it really is hmm. you know acknowledge that sometimes there are things that will have an impact on you that you know, positive or negative. And if you can find somebody that you can talk to, it, it's not a breach of confidentiality. You keep the confidential details out of it. Yeah. But, you know, the, the broader kind of thing, talk to somebody about it. Mm. Just, it, it is the get it off your chest. Just, you know, it doesn't always need a counsellor. Sometimes it just needs saying out loud. And do we maybe need to change, you know, the codes of conduct of the professional associations? I, I don't know that the codes of conduct need to change, I think. Are we just understanding them wrong? A more nuanced kind of approach to it. Yeah. Because mm. it, it's quite, it is or it isn't at the moment. You know, you are invisible mm. or you're over-involved. Well, there's, mm. there's a million kind of bits in between that. Mm. Well, one of the things that I'm that I've I've been thinking about since I worked on the book and since I did my PhD as well was um I would love to see more people talk about the fact that as soon as you drop an interpreter into a situation, that's a different situation than one without an interpreter. Yeah. Um and the, especially for professionals outside of interpreting to say 
actually, we don't want you to pretend you're not there. We want you to allow us to do our job with the same or better skill and appreciation and um, abilities as we would if this was a, a monolingual event. And that's very different than saying pretend you're not there. What it's saying is you're going to miss some stuff because of the language issue. What we want you to do is to do your best to make sure that we're not missing things that we would have if this was monolingual. Um, and yeah. I think that that appreciation that interpreting is creative and constructive would probably help a lot to begin with because interpreters would suddenly realise the conduit thing is a pile of garbage. Yeah. Yeah. I concur. Yeah, what he said. <laughs> yeah. Well, we probably debunked that in episode one, I think. <laughs> Trust me, the amount of times we hear it. Um, yeah, I even wrote a chapter on it and got told off for writing a chapter on it, but there we go. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I, I mean the, the thing is, you can wish it to be a conduit kind of model, but you, you can wish it all you want. It's not going to make it so, you know, because it, it's not. Yeah, that's true. Hallelujah! <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of difficult to wrap up this kind of episode, but I th- I found this extremely interesting and very, in a way, the most difficult episode I think we've ever done. But one of the episodes that really gave me a lot, a lot of food for thought. I don't know about you guys. Absolutely. Mm. I totally agree. Yeah, I'm going to be asking the people who are looking at the transition between university and profession. On the basis of this, I'm going to be asking them that any work that's done to ease that transition includes the fact that no matter what kind of interpreting you do, you're a human being first and an interpreter second. Um, And to... We probably need someone outside the profession to do the training because I don't think the profession has the materials. But to to pull someone in, to sit down with people and say, this is what it's okay to do. This is what it's not okay to do. But here are exactly what you've done for us here and saying, you know, here are some basic all the way through to some complex techniques. For goodness sake, learn this skill set. You probably can't examine people on their Maybe you can examine them on their emotional abilities, but Mm. having something that says to them, life is going to test you on this, so we are too. Um, And certainly off the back of this, I'm now going to talk to people who are working on that transition and saying, we have to hit this and we have to get it right. And it's probably more important than any other subject in the profession. Especially for PSI. Yeah, because without it, you're not going to have any. If if you don't, you're going to run out. Yeah, we basically already have done because ninety something percent of professional PSIs in the UK are on strike still. Okay, yeah, technically, yes, yes, um, and so the people who are a large proportion of the people who are doing PSI in the UK—I don't have the exact figures—are um, not the same people who were doing it four years ago. Mm. Yeah, and you, th- there are all sorts of. I can't, I'm not at liberty to go into all of those issues, probably get this section edited out, but um, that is in itself a difficult issue. Hmm. We now have people doing the most dangerous form of interpreting, and they're likely to be, by and large, some of the least, the least trained interpreters because the good ones walked away. Yeah. And the other problem that leaves you with is that you have no kind of... <sighs> experienced interpreters to mentor the new ones to kind of go yeah sometimes you will feel like that Hmm. here's what I did 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, so, so you you're kind of perpetuating the problem. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> we, we we could spend all night on that one. Trust me. <laughs> that that would be edited out of the podcast. But yeah, <laughs> we we could spend all night on that. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> would be more of a therapy session then. Oh, no, I, I don't know where therapy ends and ranting like a maniac begins. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a fine line. It's yes. a fine line. Unless just, you're just walk in and you'll work it out. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I think all I can really say now is thank you, Justine, for uh, doing this little session with us. Wow. <laughs> Basically. Oh, no, thank you. It has been a blast. Yeah. I've got a Skype account. What? What? <laughs> <laughs>